Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Good morning. Hello, Ronnie. You survived the storm all right. Barna is still there, is it? Yes, happily. happily yeah. Yeah, clinging yeah. on, clinging on to the west coast. Yeah. Well, clinging on to the west of the city, I think. We <laughs> seem to be at the moment. We've become a suburb. Yeah, yeah. That's when no I question. moved out there first, uh, everybody thought I was mad. That I was in Spiddle, <laughs> out in the sticks. Oh, and absolutely. Well, it's still a little bit outside the town. But yeah, uh, just yeah. about. Yeah. It's, it's joined up. It's really yeah. linked up now. Okay. And Tom, I believe there was a birthday recently. Uh, was it anybody we know? Your uh, own birthday, I think. Oh, me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I just got a year younger. That's all. Oh, right. <laughs> you don't look a day older than the 38 yeah, years you are, yeah. Tom. It just Plamos. looks great. Plamos. Amazing, amazing. Well, anyway, congratulations, belated yeah, thank as it you. may thank be. Thank you. Good man, Tom. So, listen, where are we? We're here again. And what have you got in store? Well, this week I am writing about Clada rings. Oh, good. And I have a good reason for it. The the Clada ring, as you know, it's a plain hoop, uh, and there's either a hammered or a cast bezel, which is two hands clasping, holding a heart, and with a crown on top. It is a beautiful ring, Tom. It I is. always yeah. thought it really is an yeah. exceptionally lovely idea yeah. and it's beautifully presented in yeah. a ring form. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. I'm and it's an iconic, yeah. an iconic Isn't Galway image yes. yeah, yeah. as well. I, I've no idea where it came from. Though. Well, I can tell you a little bit now because the, the motif of the clasped hands that goes back to ancient times. They, <laughs> they were known Mediterranean in the Mediterranean as field rings or faith rings. Ooh. And they go back to Roman times, in fact. Yeah. Uh, the heart, which of course became regarded uh, by lovers as, you know, the seal of affection, really. Yes. That came later. That came much later, uh, as did the crown, which is the distinguishing feature of the cladder ring uh, from all of the others. Now, the cladder ring itself goes back, the earliest one we know about is roughly the year 1700. Oh. Uh, several of these were made with the initials R.I., which was Richard Joyce. Right. We know he made a number of pieces of silver uh, that are in various convents, in the Dominican convent in particular, uh, and they date to about 1715. And he may or may not have gotten, indeed, the inspiration for the cladder ring while working, he worked as a goldsmith in Algiers. Nice. But, <clears throat> you know, the, the origins of the Clada ring is really, there's so much folklore and mythology about it that it's very hard to know where yes. the truth begins right. and myth goes away, you know. Anyway, uh, he, he was the one who put the crown on the ring. And... Maybe he regarded it as a symbol of perfection. Maybe uh, maybe there was a king in the clad at the time. Maybe, right. you know, it's hard yeah, to know. Yeah. Anyway, 
a number of these rings are, are extant that date from the very early 1700s. But maybe with the death of Joyce, I don't know, uh, the kind of whole tradition seemed to have gone away for a while. And then another goldsmith called George Robinson, he revived it uh, a generation or two after Joyce. And after that, quite a number of Galway goldsmiths made the rings. Right. Uh, up until the mid-19th century, and then the whole thing became commercialised. Now... It was in the 19th century that Mr. and Mrs. Hall, they wrote a very famous yes. three-volume yes, book indeed. on Ireland. And in it, they had a quotation when they were writing about the Clada. And they said, and I quote, The people of the Clada have many peculiar customs. One is worthy of special note. The wedding ring is an heirloom in the family. It is regularly transferred by a mother to her daughter first married and so on to their descendants. These rings are largely of solid gold and not infrequently cost two or three pounds each. Now, this book went into a number of editions, but not only that, but that description was repeated in many, many other books and articles and newspapers and so on. Uh, even though the halls called the ring solid gold, uh, in fact, in recent times when, when, when they have assaying, being assaying some of these rings, the, carrot, the number of carrots in the ring varies very, very considerably. And the, it, at the time, Galway makers did not have to send their rings to Dublin for hallmarking. All right. So... The poor fishermen of the Cleda, to whom three pounds was, was an <laughs> absolute fortune at yeah. the time. He could tell the goldsmith how much he could afford to pay. And in turn, that would have fixed the carrots, the number of carrots in the, in the gold. In mm -hmm. other words, it was poverty, in fact, that dictated the fineness of the gold uh, rings in the Cleda. So, if you're in a relationship, you wear the ring with the point of the heart pointing towards your fingernail if you are bespoke engaged married whatever uh, it's in the reverse the point of the heart is <coughs> towards the knuckle and that's why it's known as in the credit the heart and hand ring lovely and the reason why i am writing about that this week and the illustration that i have is of a collection of rings that are in the national museum Right. And there's quite a number of them in it. It's very interesting uh, because they vary slightly in design and scale and so on. But tomorrow at three o'clock on Friday, the Galway Poetry Trail will have a new uh, <coughs> poem put up. And the title of the poem is The Cladder Ring. And it's by a Dublin poet called Nessa O'Mahony. Right. And it's right and proper, I suppose, that this will be going on to uh, the wall of the oldest jewellers in Ireland. Oh, Dillons. Uh, yes. Dillons are the oldest jewellers, not not uh, Jonathan Margots, who's currently there. Yeah. Uh, they, they've been actually making rings since the year 1750. And uh, so this is a small po poem. It's on slate and it is going to be unveiled on Friday, this Friday at three o'clock. The poet Mary O'Malley will do the unveiling. 
and the poem is absolutely beautiful and I'm going to read it's very short <coughs> it is written to her mother Nessa O'Mahony's mother and uh, the other interesting thing is where she bought the ring so the poem is <coughs> two hands one heart a coronet bought on shop street tied with a bow for 50 years together one hand veined blue tremoring on his lap as he learned patience in corridors and waiting rooms the other wore it proudly till fresh flesh shrank on bone the gold loosened their daughter wears it now heart inward on the middle finger to show that she's taken <laughs> that two hands grasped hers tightly once loosely later her heart crowned with love right well tom that's just wonderful that's just lovely yes i think so that is just lovely the poem is beautiful yes now those poems that we find in various places around our town and in salt hill you were the instigator of that isn't that right and it's such a good idea tom yeah, uh, well, I think you know, so, yeah. A yeah. lovely idea. What prompted you to do it, actually? And when did you start doing it? Well, I read a poem once on Walking the Prom by Maya Cannon. And right. It was so wonderful, I thought, God, pity more people couldn't see this. Wouldn't it be nice to have it on the prom? Yes. So I asked a couple of people, kind of doing market research, I suppose, and then I organised, I thought, well, if we were going to do this, that wouldn't it be nice to do it during court, during yes. the literary festival. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> so I had a meeting with court and James Harold came along. And as it happened, Seamus Heaney was coming to court <laughs> the following year, in <laughs> 2006. Yeah. So we thought, well, who better to start with than the laureate? Indeed. And he wrote a poem about girls bathing in salt. Yeah, I, I often read it. When he was on his honeymoon here, yeah. he wrote yeah. it. And as you read it on the prom, you're looking at the site yes. where the girls were bathing. And uh, that was the beginning. Lovely. 2006. Lovely. This will yeah. be, a, I'm not sure, is it two, 26 or 27th? Yes. Uh, and then. Such a we, good idea. We have another one yeah. in uh, <coughs> April. Right. Which I'm going to talk to you about later. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a kind of an organic thing. So like we use quotations from Yeats and Joyce and yes. Amy and so on yes and some of them are older works but we were also hoping that uh, eventually people would begin to write towards this all right to celebrate different aspects yes. of Galway yeah lovely and that is happening oh right that is happening gosh it grows and grows so, so it does yes yeah, yeah, so, it's such a good so idea this poem yeah. is a beautiful yeah. edition oh, it's lovely yeah. absolutely beautiful lovely yeah. Yeah. yeah well i love the whole symbol of the cladder ring i think that's beautiful i love the idea of the crown i always thought it was the crown of love you know love yeah. is so strong yeah. it was a crown bringing the joined hands are bringing the hands together it really is beautiful now jonathan margaret's he's got a little museum in his shop there has, down in yeah. Keystone. Well, well worth a and it's great isn't yeah, it, it is, it's a yeah. pleasure to look at it yeah, yeah. and he's got all kinds of little uh, instruments that were used for making the ring and uh, it's just a joy to look through it and uh, he's a good guide himself he loves yeah. showing you around yeah so it fits very well. So the this poem is going on the wall of his shop. Yes, is that it's on right? On the cross street wall. Oh, that's lovely. It's in slate. It's 
right. done by a man called Davy O'Gorman, right. who may be related to you, I don't know. Right. Well, I, I will say immediately he is related. Yeah. Well, it's very tasteful, so he must be, yeah. They're wonderful. Well, that's just lovely. Tom, that's excellent. That is excellent. Uh, I really look forward indeed to see that and I'll read that poem with great pleasure yeah. well I'm afraid I'm doing something that's kind of in such a contrast to that that it sounds awful really because I'm still on the smallpox but this is the last week people will be glad to hear and no more terrible photographs uh, I got a Quite a reaction to the photograph yes. last week. So, I'm so afraid did I. it was. So did I. Oh, it no. was quite unfortunate, but it no. just made a point. It, it was wonderful. It made a yeah. point very strongly. It did, indeed. Yeah. You yeah. see, with the smallpox. Now I'm just picking up the story again. The, the desperate search these two doctors, Doctor Leonard and Brody, were doing to try and get a proper isolation unit uh, for the sufferers, because there was no cure. No cure for smallpox, you, but you had to isolate the patient. And when they were going through terrible bowel troubles to keep them hydrated and uh, cool them down from the fever, and hopefully they survived. And survival rate was actually quite high, but you could survive and be blind. You could survive and be severely pockmarked. Uh, you know, you always had the the burden of that terrible disease. But anyway, I'm just... Anyway, so they managed to get makeshift refuges in outbuildings, rooms in doctor, uh, in the Lockray barracks, and in sheds outside poor Dr. Leonard's home. And all hopes were placed now on the ready-made Iron Hospital, which was ordered from a company called Messrs. Braby & Co. in London. The hospital which was built of iron and uh, you, it, it arrived in pieces and you assembled it yourself. Uh, they were into that even in those days, 1875. The hospital was to accommodate only 12 patients. But within the five weeks of the first case being reported in Athenry, there were now 20 cases of smallpox, three of whom had died. So clearly more buildings would have to be found Tom. But in the meantime, the Lockray workhouse guardians, who had refused to admit any smallpox patients into their hospitals, had set aside beds, bedding and the necessary accoutrements that the new hospital would need, which would hopefully arrive any day then. It was already made and they were told it is being received and dispatched with the utmost urgency. It had also ordered a new ambulance to replace the one burnt in the riot in Lockray on April the 15th. But perhaps the most significant gesture was to employ two experienced nurses from Dublin's Cork Street Fever Hospital. This was a very fam famous hospital, Tom. I'll get, just give you a note on that in a moment. But anyway, finding a site for the new iron hospital had proved difficult. It was initially hoped that the site could be found, say, in Crockwell which was a kind of a neutral venue. It wasn't Athen Rye, it wasn't Loch Ray. But this was quickly shot down by a visit from the local parish priest. And parish priests in those days had great power that he said in no uncertain terms would Crockwell be used to solve Athen Rye's problems. The final site chosen was a waste plot of ground near the barracks in Athen Rye town. But no sooner was the site known than there were serious objections. Poor Dr. Brody, the local government inspector from Galway, who'd been working with Leonard, desperately trying to 
contained the disease was visited by a deputation of Athenry townspeople, Tom, who presented him with a written statement. They claimed the site chosen for the hospital was a commonage and was totally unsuited for a smallpox hospital. The deputation painted a pretty bleak picture of what had happened to their town. Our streets are now deserted, they said, for some time on account of this sickness among us. We may be suffering in many ways, but we feel that fixing this hospital almost in our midst, that instead of lessening the evil, would only be continuing it. The petition went on to emphasise that they understood that isolation was the best way of containing the disease, but no quarter in the town of Athenry was more frequented than the common. It is convenient for schools, attended by 150 children, and so on and so on, and they made this long argument, and the letter was signed by 39 people, including the parish priest, Father John O'Grady. And the letter ended with the firm indication that the people would assert to the last their rights to claim their commonage. So poor Dr Brodie was at his wit's end, and he's written a report to the local government board that evening, he says that Dr. Leonard and himself found themselves thwarted at every step they tried to take. The Lockray people will not allow us to avail of the workhouse hospital. The parish priest in Crockwell and parishioners will not allow us to erect a site given to us by Mr. J. Blake. And now the parish priest and curate and 37 of the inhabitants of Athenry are up in arms against us. So pressure was building up. As the number of cases are reported, from March the 1st to May 17, there were now 44 cases, of which 11 had died. The local government board, however, insisted that the site chosen on the waste ground in Athenry would be the site for this iron hospital. And this time, the Athenry curate of Father Rouen stormed forth, quoting poor Dr. Brady, and asserted that that hospital would not be built on the commons in Athenry. Let them go elsewhere, he said. And he added menacingly that they would do the same as the people of Loch Ray did to their van, which was the burning of the hospital van. So just, Tom, you know, wonderful how things can turn around. When all seemed to be lost, uh, there was a much-needed breakthrough. At a meeting of the Lockray Board of Guardians on May the 9th, Lord Dunsandle in the chair, the objections to the Athenry site were given, were studied, and it was decided not to proceed with the Athenry site. But instead, amazingly, a suggestion was made that a Mr Irvine owned a substantial dwelling with an adjoining field in the neighbourhood of Athenry, which he was willing to let. And he said, with the minimum of work, could be made suitable as a hospital. Well, <laughs> this was immediately seized upon by the members. A deal was struck with Mr Irving, and in a matter of days, beds and bedding, clothing and cooking utensils was dispatched, and patients moved in. And now, indeed, were the members slow in doing their duty this time. Arrangements were made uh, with a respectable baker and a butcher and a grocer in Athenry for the supply of provisions. It was further decided to relocate the Iron Hospital, which had just arrived, on the grounds of the Lockray Workhouse Hospital to be used as an infectious disease unit quite separate from the other sick. This time, 
Poor Dr Brody had a far happier report to the, to the local government board the following day. He quote, and I quote, On my way home from Lockray yesterday, I visited Mr Irving's house. It is situated about a quarter of a mile from the town, quite secluded, with a field attached, and is very suitable for our purpose. And never forgetting the rule of law, Tom, because the guardians were always, you know, nodding towards the law. They also passed a resolution strongly condemning the lawless act, the riot in Lockray on April the 15th and the burning of the ambulance van. It recommended that the government set up a searching inquiry into the origin of the case with the view of making the chief actors amenable to justice. <laughs> I know. As if that was the... The, the only important thing, there were yes. far more serious matters. But anyway, look, things now are looking up. And despite all the setbacks, the genuine fear of the people, the difficulty poor Dr. Leonard and Brody had in finding a proper hospital care for the sufferers, the total number of sm smallpox patients during the month of March were 75 cases, 16 deaths. It's hard to under to establish. I couldn't really find out how many ultimately died from the ep epidemic but at one point uh, in, in June 8th, 1875, 141 cases was registered. Now, before the epidemic would pass, however, additional temporary buildings were added to Mr Irvine's house in the adjoining field to take the excess. The Iron Hospital at Loch Ray workhouse was used to capacity. All cattle fairs and markets were banned in the area. And despite people's worst fears in Lockray, there was no smallpox case there. Numbers could have been far higher, but for the actions of these two wonderful doctors in isolating sufferers, even when the isolation was primitive in the face of a frightened populace. Despite all the drama, this particular outbreak of smallpox town was remarkably well contained. Isolation of patients as well as cleanliness vaccination and the disinfection of clothes, bedding and rooms were all considered, you know, the most important thing they could do against this disease. There was no cure, as I said. You either got well or you didn't. But by July 13, there were no new cases reported. A fund was established for the families of the sick, which received generous contributions. The Lockray Board of Guardians who, if you remember, Tom, had so vehemently castigated Dr. Leonard for sending a smallpox patient through the crowds in Loch Ray, now acknowledged that, quote, he had given general satisfaction by his care and attention to the patients under his charge, and it voted him an additional £100 to his salary for one year only right. in their gratitude. It was only general satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like all these things, Tom, you know, you start reading the, th this Cork Street Fever Hospital in Dublin. You know, I just read the most alarming statistics about it, really. Quite extraordinary. I'm sure there are histories written of it because, are, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to tackle these awful scourges that inflicted people was, was really extraordinary. Yeah. In 1826, the hospital opened in 1814. In 1826, 10,000 patients were treated mainly in tents over its extensive grounds outside. They couldn't contain them in the hospital. 10,000 patients, imagine. Yeah. Now, in 1832, Dublin was ravaged by a cholera epidemic. And despite the hospital's best efforts, 
thousands died and were horribly buried in mass graves in Bully's Acre, wherever that is. Typhus, typhus came again during the Great Famine, when rural dwellers, God help us, sought refuge in the city. And Typhus returned with a vengeance in the 1880s, when Gerald Mendley Hopkins, Jesuit priest and influential poet, died of the disease. Well, anyway... Yeah, the so there was a huge amount of poverty around the course of Terrible well. poverty. So and people are living in appalling yeah, conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The hospital anyway was transferred to the Cherry Orchard Hospital in Belly Firmit and Cork Street Hospital closed in 1953, quite recent really. Yeah. Quite recent yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. But these yeah. scourges were, as you say, absolutely devastating. A lot of it was due with poverty uh, and the lack of cleanliness and the treatment of sewage and waste ah, yeah. and things That's like right. that, yeah. Yeah. you know, which were yeah. kind of breeding grounds for all these diseases. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But that was that one. Now, um, Dr. Murray, in a, a history of medical, um, <coughs> a medical history of Galway, yeah. which indeed Kenny's published, yeah. uh, and I have it a copy, there was only one outbreak of um, smallpox in Galway town, and that was in 1880-something, and it was quite minor, really. And they were all sent off to the fever hospital off, off the docks. Do you remember that hospital, Tom? I do, Tom? yes. I, I do. remember it as well. I do, yeah. A fever hospital was built there beside the docks, so... Poor sailors coming ashore if they had a fever, they were funny with funny diseases, yeah. Yeah, were made it was an isolation hospital, an isolation hospital, and yeah, Debbie, the right. aforementioned, uh, <coughs> yes, product, that blew the house away. Oh, it ended up in the bay. <laughs> oh, my goodness, there was yeah. a big, yeah. tall man who yeah. lived there on his own, really. Yeah, yeah, at the time, I can't remember, he used to walk around town a lot big tall man with a big long overcoat on him yeah and oh yes uh, he but th th it was literally blown into the sea the house right. during that event yeah yeah so that's not that far ago i mean it was in our lifetimes that oh the yeah hospital oh, i remember there. it too yeah. yeah 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 and i have photographs of it as well yeah yeah okay well and of course now we've had COVID, uh, another lesson in in indeed how serious yeah. things can spread exactly you know. yeah but listen, Tom, we'll leave it at that for this week. I'm yep. finished my particular theme. Yep. I'm looking forward to that poem going on the wall on yes, Friday. Me too, yeah. Lovely yeah. Mary O'Malley, one of the great Irish poets yeah, yeah. Uh, among us. Yeah. Uh, she'll do a wonderful job in unveiling that, I'm yes. sure. Yes. And well, there's will be. Yes. Yeah. Forever and for ever. For many Galwegians and visitors, hopefully, yeah. to see and admire. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Right. Good man, Tom. We yeah. leave it at that this week then. Yeah, God bless. Goodbye now. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye.